This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Thank you for joining me today. Welcome to all of our new investigators and all of our returning investigators, where this week we are circling back with just a little bit about Truman Capote and his most essential swan, Babe Paley. I am catching wind out there that many of you are pretty taken with the feud Capote versus the Swan series, and sure enough, I am too. I managed to catch the first two episodes yesterday, and wowza, the sets, the costume, the story, it is a captivating visualization of this group of folks we have come to know about here on Done and Done. I did hear from one listener, not recommended, y'all. She played a little drinking game with the show where she sipped every time she saw or recognized something that we have talked about on Done and Done. Again, not recommended. We have been all over the content I've seen so far, and I'm really looking forward to the next episode. I think a lot of y'all are too. So today, all throughout our Swans episodes from last year here on the main feed, Capote's Coterie, that arc runs from episode 99 to 118. For all of those stories, we have had weekly corresponding not done yet episodes over on patreon.com for Done and Done. If you have ever wanted to get in on those Patreon episodes and hear what those looser fun bonuses sound like for totally free, now is your chance. I'm going to be pulling out a few of these over the next few weeks that fill in a few more details, maybe enhance the story for you a little bit in your Capote journey. Most certainly, Babe Paley has been the focus of what we've seen so far on screen, and today's bonus focuses in on the ethereal Babe Paley herself, her style, her influence, her place in the world, and all that she inspires. For my existing Patreon folks, don't you worry, you'll have new exclusive content coming your way this week as we continue our journey into Mr. Hollywood, Warren Beatty. You got two juicy episodes last week. I have more coming for you this week to finish out that investigation for now. Today it is to Babe, lady of influence and style, certainly a trend setter, filling in a million extra bits in this bonus to supplement your viewing pleasure. Babe Paley, let's investigate. Hey, investigators, it's Alicia here, and I am not done yet talking about Babe Paley and bird cages. Holy cats. A few things I want to follow up on in this not done yet from our episode about Babe Paley. I want to begin it here with a little bit of extra info 
from David Masello from his piece, American Beauty, and weave that in and out a little bit and connect it to a bigger Breakfast at Tiffany's birdcage thematic scene here uh, from David Masello and American Beauty. David Janney's an art collector and former PR who handled some of New York's most glittering society events, says, You have to remember that Babe Paley and the women in her circle were true individuals. The society women of today don't stand out in the way people like Babe Paley did. She dedicated her life to beauty. In her personal appearance, the objects she acquired, the people she surrounded herself with, the homes she made at the St. Regis and Fifth Avenue and elsewhere. Y'all, the St. Regis, <laughs> just so you know, and we're going to get into this story, the St. Regis is <laughs> owned by William Vincent Astor, who many Babe's sister marries. There's a reason that Babe lives in the St. Regis. More connections on that to come. Uh, continuing from Masello here. The couple entertained CBS stars such as Edward R. Murrow, visiting dignitaries and politicians, writers including Capote, who once famously said of his former friend, Babe Paley had only one fault. She was perfect. Otherwise, she was perfect. Style was everything at their Fifth Avenue apartment. This is Bill and Babe. Sheets were ironed twice once in the laundry, and once on the bed. Menus were archived to avoid serving the same meals to returning guests. This is not an unusual habit within high society ladies. Two I can think of right off the top of my head who archived their menus are not only Babe, but Betsy Bloomingdale does the same thing, as well as Irene Selznick's sister, Edie Mayer. She does the same thing. Betsy Bloomingdale actually archives her dresses as well. When you look at Betsy Bloomingdale's old closet, there are index cards hanging around every hanger with the date, location, and event that that particular gown was worn to. It's really quite incredible. Babe archives her menus. Visitors, continuing from Masalo, complained of not being able to get into a bathroom because there were so many flowers. I can buy my own flowers. Uh, to cap it all, Paley had amassed a distinguished art collection, a centerpiece of which was Picasso's Boy Leading a Horse. This piece, Picasso's Boy Leading a Horse, was previously owned by Gertrude Stein. This painting now hangs in the Museum of Modern Art a gift from Bill Paley. Much has been written about Babe and Paley's troubled marriage, both then and subsequently. Paley was devoted to Babe and keenly aware of the cachet she brought him, yet he was also a conspicuous womanizer. Kenneth J. Lane, who maintains a close friendship with Bill after Babe passes away, says about the whole thing, Bill was Bill and she knew it. She adored him. He was a fascinating man and much of her role was to make him happy. Yet, Truman Capote, quoted in Gerald Clark's biography of the writer, said, I never met anybody who was so desperately unhappy as she was. 
once she tried to leave Bill. And I sat down and said, look, Bill brought you. It's as if he went down to central casting. Look upon being Mrs. William S. Paley as a job, the best job in the world. Kind of interesting how levels of friendship almost discern what you get from a person, right? Have you ever met somebody that their friend describes you like, I don't get that at all because you have a different way? Truman thinks Babe is completely miserable. So know that going into part of his answered prayers, like, God, poor Babe, I feel for her. She's my best friend. Kenneth J. Lane, on the other hand, says Babe adores her husband. Back to Masalu. Throughout her decades-long tenure as society leader, the embodiment of high fashion and fundraiser for her favorite charities, Babe also occupied a role that could only have existed in her day, certainly to fashionable women in New York, but also to those in the far reaches of America, Babe Paley was a recognized name, the exemplar of style and grace. Such was her power that one warm day, right, upon leaving a Manhattan restaurant, she removed her scarf, tied it to her purse, paparazzi recorded the moment, and quote, in no time, women throughout America were tying scarves to their handbags. This is recalled by... David Grafton, the writer of the Cushing Sisters. We are getting into the Cushing Sisters, but today, kind of all about Babe. Uh, Grafton continues, So great was Babe Paley's charisma that women of all ages and from every walk of life wouldn't do nearly anything to emulate her. They wanted not only to look like her, but to be like her. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Babe lived in supreme style. I want to bring in one... <laughs> fun bit of research that I came across before we continue to the rest of this story, because Babe really was a fashion leader. One thing, investigators, you might not know about me. Back in the day, I, (laughs) oh gosh, early 1990s, launched Origins. This is one of Estee Lauder's brands in my local department store in Atlanta, Georgia. And from Origins, I went to Chanel. I worked for Chanel for a few years, and there's nothing quite like seeing a a cosmetics counter, especially a high-end one. People come in for all kinds of things, but in this weird, wonderful (laughs) job in my early 20s, I learned a lot about fragrance. If you want the rundown on how all of Coco Chanel's fragrances go, their top notes, their middle notes, their base notes, their heart notes who designed them, how they were designed, how they were named, I can give you that. So naturally, when I came across this bit of information, I (laughs) noted it all. And I'm like, I have to talk about this. So Babe Paley is so much a trendsetter. Two fragrances become hits because she wore them. The first is from the House of Balmain, Ventver, Green Wind, V-E-N-T-V-E-R-T. I have never smelled the original Vent Vert. It is by Pierre Balmain. 
It's a floral green fragrance for women created by Germain Cellier, launched in 1947. Vent Vert has, it's a green fragrance, which is a little bit unusual on the market, to be fair. It has an aromatic profile of green, fresh, spicy, aromatic, floral, white floral, mossy, woody, rose, citrus, and earthy notes. The original formula of Vent Vert has been discontinued, but it has a new formula been brought on the market. If you have, I I have, again, never smelled it, but when I listen to that profile, top notes are violet leaf, bergamot, narcissus, heart notes, galbanum, basil, hyacinth, narcissus, lily of the valley, rose, freesia, jasmine, geranium. Base notes in here are oak moss, sandalwood, and musk. I think a little bit about the prescriptives fragrance called Calyx. It is another green fragrance that has a very distinctive, unusual smell. That's Vent Vert, Green Wind for Babe. She would spray her home. She would order cases of this fragrance to not only use personally, but use in her home as a home fragrance. The next one up here takes her 22 years or so. There's a new fragrance that comes out in 1969. This is from the house of Norell. Uh, Norell is a floral fragrance, but it is a brown fragrance. It is said this particular Norell perfume smells like Park Avenue. Norell launches in 1968 It was created by Josephine Catapano. It is an iconic scent, uh, emblematic of the 1960s. Elements of floral and oriental perfumes. The subsequent uh, management distribution of Norel changes. It was first by Norel, then by Prestige Fragrances, finally by Five Star before it is discontinued. The formula, however, remained the same. It is no longer being produced Norel. Top notes in this one, lavender, mandarin, orange, galbanum, hyacinth, bergamot, narcissus, and lemon. Heart notes, the middle of the fragrance, includes mimosa, coriander, carnation, iris, gardenia, cinnamon, orchid, lily, jasmine, rose, cardamom. Base notes in this fragrance, Kind of go all over the place, uh, giving it a little bit of that brownish thing. Sandalwood, amber, musk, vanilla, oak moss, cedar, myrrh. Anyway, babe's a big deal, whatever she does. Her scarf on a handbag, the fragrances that she wears. She lives in supreme style. So I'm going to run back here to David Masello. After her marriage to CBS founder William S. Paley in 1947, Babe established an estate, Kaluna Farm, on Long Island, where the couple spent weekends and guests included the likes of da-da-da, Lucille Ball, Grace Kelly, and David O. Selznick in Manhattan. They occupied a magnificent suite at the St. Regis. Again, helpfully, her sister is married to the St. <laughs> Regis owner, Babe remodeled this suite with the help of society decorator Billy Baldwin. Kenneth J. Lane again quoted here, I was in my early 20s when I first saw their apartment at the St. Regis. Y'all, this is the part. This is it. It was a corner suite and it had been tented by Baldwin. There was a wonderful bird cage chandelier 
hanging in the middle of the drawing room. As David Grafton, who wrote the definitive biography of Babe and Her Family, again, this book by David Grafton is called The Sisters, The Lives and Times of the Fabulous Cushing Sisters. We are going to get into Minnie and get into Betsy and all their spider webs, just not in this episode because bird cages. Goodness, David Grafton describes Babe's apartment this way. Using yard upon yard of Indian cotton, Babe transformed the space into an exotic fantasy. Later, when Babe and Bill move into their 20-room duplex at 825th Avenue, while still keeping her St. Regis suite, Baldwin recreated their old St. Regis living room, which he had installed originally as a jewel-like library. Okay. Whoa, this is where it gets a little bit fun because we have talked about Breakfast at Tiffany's. We have talked about Carol, Marcus, Soroyan, Soroyan, Mathahau, and Made of Moonbeams. Now we've talked about Babe a little bit. We're going to talk about Marilyn Monroe. She was another one of Truman's swans. And when you look into the character of Holly Golightly, Definitely Lily May. I can see Carol Marcus there. I can see Babe there. I can see the swans that we're going to talk about this week on the main feed. Slim Keith and CZ Guest there. But this birdcage chandelier thing was just too much because Truman would have been seeing this in 1955. Truman meets Babe in 1955. Breakfast at Tiffany's comes out in 1958. And in 1955, Truman has moved. He has moved into the basement apartment of Oliver Smith. He's going to live there about a decade. This is where he will write Breakfast at Tiffany's. So seeing this birdcage chandelier connection really got me going into Breakfast at Tiffany's and the birdcage thematic, I don't know, realm icon idea that Truman captures in his novella. Again, I really do recommend Breakfast at Tiffany's. It's a three-hour listen, y'all. It really is some of the most incredible writing and incredible themes connected beautifully in words in a very, very short piece of writing. So it made me want to go through and uh, play with where are the bird cages mentioned in Breakfast at Tiffany's, because if so, maybe there's something to babe there. So this is Truman Capote from Breakfast at Tiffany's. This is in the novella before he meets Holly. Remember, he doesn't meet Holly go lightly until she's at his window being saved from the drunk guy downstairs. But remember the original meeting of Truman and Carol Marcus, right? happened opposite that. It was Truman at Carol's window. So there's definitely something to that window aspect, but this part of the novella written before Truman, who is the narrator in Breakfast at Tiffany's, has run into Holly Golightly. Now and then, I ran across her outside our neighborhood. Once a visiting relative took me to 21 and there at a superior table. Surrounded by four men, none of them Mr. Arbuck, yet all of them interchangeable with him, 
was Miss Golightly, idly, publicly combing her hair. And her expression, an unrealized yawn, put by example a dampener on the excitement I felt over dining at so swanky a place. Another night deep in the summer, the heat of my room sent me out into the streets. I walked down 3rd Avenue to 51st Street, where there was an antique store with an object in its window I admired, a palace of a birdcage, a mosque of minarets and bamboo rooms yearning to be filled with talkative parrots. But the price was $350. On the way home, I noticed a cab driver crowd gathered in front of P.J. Clark's saloon, apparently attracted there by a happy group of whiskey-eyed Australian army officers baritoning waltzing Matilda. As they sang, they took turns spin-dancing, a girl over the cobbles and under the L, and the girl, Miss Golightly, to be sure, floated round in their arms, light as a scarf. This is the very first instance of the birdcage. Truman, he's pent up. It's hot outside. He goes and sees this birdcage. And what does he want to do with it? Yearning to be filled with talkative parrots. But then the very next image he sees is Holly floating around, light as a scarf. Within the novella, now the narrator and Holly know each other. So here's your next birdcage thing. We ate lunch at the cafeteria in the park. Afterwards, avoiding the zoo, Holly said she couldn't bear to see anything in a cage. We giggled, ran, sang along the paths towards the old wooden boathouse, now gone. Leaves floated on the lake, on the shore. A parkman was fanning a bonfire of them and the smoke rising like Indian signals was the only smudge on the quivering air. Aprils have never meant much to me. Autumns seem that season of beginning. Spring, which is how I felt sitting with Holly on the railings of the boathouse porch. I thought of the future and spoke of the past, because Holly wanted to know about my childhood. She talked of her own, too. But it was elusive, nameless, placeless, an impressionistic recital, though the impression received was contrary to what one expected, for she gave an almost voluptuous account of swimming in summer, Christmas trees, pretty cousins and parties, in short, happy in a way that she was not, and never certainly the background of a child who had run away. Or, I asked, wasn't it true that she'd been out on her own since she was 14? She rubbed her nose. In the novella, Holly rubs her nose as a sign of about to lie to you, avoid the truth. When she gets nervous, when she gets vulnerable, that's Holly's tell, rubbing her nose. Holly says, that's true. The other isn't, but really, darling, you make such a tragedy out of your childhood, I didn't feel I should compete. She hopped off the railing. Anyway, it reminds me, I ought to send Fred some peanut butter. The rest of the afternoon, we were east and west, worming out of reluctant grocers, cans of peanut butter, a wartime scarcity. 
Dark came before we rounded up half a dozen jars, the last at a delicatessen on 3rd Avenue. It was near the shop with the palace of a birdcage in its window, so I took her there to see it, and she enjoyed the point, its fantasy. But still, it's just a cage. Passing a Woolworth's, she gripped my arm. Let's steal something, she said, pulling me into the store, where at once there seemed a pressure of eyes, as though we were already under suspicion. Come on, don't be chicken. She scouted a counter piled with paper pumpkins and Halloween masks. The sales lady was occupied with a group of nuns who were trying on masks. Holly picked up a mask and slipped it over her face. She chose another and put it on mine. Then she took my hand and we walked away. It was as simple as that. Outside, we ran a few blocks, I think just to make it more dramatic, but also because, as I'd discovered, successful theft exhilarates. I wondered if she had stolen often. I used to, she said. I mean, if I had to, if I wanted anything. But I still do it every now and then, sort of to keep my hand in. We wore the masks all the way home. Put that into play with Truman's black and white ball with Nick and Lenny's masked ball as well. Okay, sort of the last instance, but I do think sums it up almost the last instance. Okay, we got another mention here of bird cages. And can't you just see like Babe's apartment, bird cage chandelier? What must that have looked like? Truman writes in Breakfast at Tiffany's, On Christmas Eve, she and Mag gave a party. This would be Holly Golightly and Mag's Wildwood. Holly asked me to come early and help trim the tree. I'm still not sure how they maneuvered that tree into the apartment. The top branches were crushed against the ceiling and the lower ones spread wall to wall. Altogether, it was not unlike the Yuletide giant we see in Rockefeller Plaza. Moreover, it would have taken a Rockefeller to decorate it for it soaked up baubles and tinsel like melting snow. Holly suggested she run out to Woolworth's and steal some balloons, and she did, and they turned the tree into a fairly good show. We made a toast to our work, and Holly said, Look in the bedroom. There's a present for you. I had one for her, too, a small package in my pocket that felt even smaller when I saw square on the bed and wrapped with a beautiful red ribbon, the beautiful birdcage. But Holly, it's dreadful. I couldn't agree more, but I thought you wanted it. The money, $350, she shrugged. A few extra trips to the powder room. Promise me, though. Promise you'll never put a living thing in it. Ah. Uh. It's that, promise me, you'll never put a living thing in it. I'd stop there, but I think this is, oh gosh, almost uh, <laughs> even more startling when we look at that birdcage analogy with Babe and Truman. I started to kiss her, but she held out her hand. Gimme, she said, tapping the bulge in my pocket. I'm afraid it isn't much, and it wasn't. A St. Christopher's medal, but at least it came from Tiffany's. Holly was not a girl who could keep anything, and surely by now she has lost that medal, left it in a suitcase or some hotel drawer. 
but the birdcage is still mine. I've lugged it to New Orleans, Nantucket, all over Europe, Morocco, the West Indies, yet I seldom remember that it was Holly who gave it to me. Because at one point, I chose to forget. We had a big falling out, and among the objects rotating in the eye of our hurricane were the birdcage and O.J. Berman and my story, a copy of which I'd given Holly when it appeared in the University Review. Again, I can't tell you how much that novella is truly spectacular. If you would like a nice little three-hour voyage of delight, listening-wise, it is on Audible. Michael C. Hall narrates it. You can find the text online free. Uh, it, it's such a, such a good novella. The birdcage imagery theme in that really did mean something learning that Babe had a birdcage chandelier, A number one, not only had that chandelier in her original apartment in the St. Regis, but moved it along as well. Investigators, that's only the first of the not done yet. This week's stories got me in so many done and dones, but we've gone long enough in this one for now. Babe and bird cages, we're going to whoo, shut that door and never keep a living thing in it. Stay tuned. You may have some more fun not done yet coming up. And don't forget your early ad-free episode. First episode of this week is going to come out for you on Sunday, so stay tuned for that. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in and your support on Patreon and being awesome and your community and your emails and holy cats. There are so many other things happening in the back part of my investigation. I have got to shut up so I can get on them to tell them all to you, La Scandal. Big love, everybody. Have a tremendous week. Can't wait to catch up with you next time. Until we do, stay curious and keep on investigating. Big love. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.